The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV shops or reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who wants those mother-freaking snakes off his mother-freaking plane, because with me is a guy who I just cannot believe has put up with me for 200 episodes of this show, because with me is the Quatsit to my Sherlock, because with me is a guy who is into all the cosplay that goes on on the Comic-Con floor, and of course with me is the guy who stopped a nuclear bomb from going off in New York City with absolutely no idea what he was doing. Can with me is a guy who knows not to fall out of helicopters when wearing a Santa suit. Can with me is a guy who is always ready with a grenade. Can with me is a guy who plays a really mean Max guitar. My co-host and jukebox hero. Can with me is a guy who has not been replaced by a Zygon. Can with me is a guy who thinks it was about time for heroes to wrap itself up. Can with me is a guy who is shocked to discover that his former master is Darth Vader. Can with me is a guy who has a Fear of Horta Party, thanks to the Equals. Get with me, because the guy who just wants to believe. My co host. Hey, everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we continue the spring 2017 TV season with an episode of Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, and Michael and Tim's review of Supernatural, along with a new Netflix, Amazon, and other non traditional networks recommendation in the streaming section. But before all of that, we'll kick everything off with the News with Nico section. <laughs> Amy Acker lands lead in the Fox Marvel Mutants pilot. Person of interest and Angel alum Amy Acker is set to play opposite True Blood's Stephen Moyer in Fox's as-yet-untitled Marvel drama pilot. Penned by Matt Nix from Burn Notice, the project focuses on two ordinary parents played by Acker and Moyer who discover their children possess mute powers. Forced to go on the run from a hostile government, the family joins up with an underground network of mutants and must fight to survive. Acker's character, Katie Stewart, is in the midst of a separation from her her husband Reed when their family situation takes a dark turn. She in turn discovers that she is stronger than she thinks. The cast also includes Jamie Chung from Gotham as a teleporter named Blink, Blair Redford from Switched at Birth as the Native American leader of the aforementioned Underground Network, Sean Teal from Rain and Incorporated as a mutant with the ability to absorb and manipulate photons, and Natalie Allen Lind from the Goldbergs in Gotham as one of the Stewart's kids. No word yet on when the series will premiere, but most likely it'll either be next fall or mid-season like January 2018. YouTube gets into the live streaming TV business. The Wild West of streaming alternatives to cable just got a new player. Earlier this week, YouTube announced that it will offer a live television package for cord cutters that includes broadcasting cable channels in the same place where you can watch videos of baby pandas and bad acoustic covers of today's alternative rockets. YouTube TV will feature all five of the big networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, and The CW, live streaming so you can tell your cable or satellite company to shove it. It will also 
also include many of the cable offshoots of the above networks, including ESPN, FX, USA, Freeform, Bravo, Sci-Fi, and Disney Channel, so you can tell your cable or satellite company to double shove it. I've perused the channel lineup offered already in the package, though they have said that even more channels may be available before it launches later this year, and almost every channel I'd want is there. The only glaring missing channel right now is AMC, for, of course, Walking Dead. For those who don't care about live TV, YouTube TV will also offer a cloud-based DVR with no storage limits that can hold a program for up to nine months. YouTube TV subscribers will also get YouTube Red, the company's original programming service included in their package. And of course, it will be available on whatever screen you use, from your phone to your tablet to your home TV, all via tools such as Chromecast. Although, I have heard it will have something like a six-device limit per account, so no sharing it with all your friends and everything like you do with your HBO Go account. But how much does it cost, you ask? YouTube TV will run $35 per month with no commitments. That puts it in line with rival services like Sling TV, which has tiered packages running anywhere between $20 and $40 up to $60 as well. So when does this go live? All Google is saying right now is later this year. So keep your eyes peeled and ditch cable as soon as possible. Deadpool teaser from Logan now available online. Deadpool 2 may not have cast its cable yet or have even started shooting, but there was no way Fox was going to let Logan open without some extra for the fans. Rumors of a post credit scene were just that, but a pre-movie bonus teaser, well, there you go. Follow the link in the ACC feed to watch the teaser trailer now. Oh, and how great was the giant FU from Marvel to DC by having the Superman theme playing in the background? Yeah, I love that. Star Trek Discovery to debut in late summer, early fall. It's not an exact star date, Trekkies, but at least we now have a general idea of when Star Trek Discovery will finally get underway. The new Trek TV series headed for CBS All Access is expected to launch sometime in late summer, early fall, CBS chairman Les Munas told investors early last week at a Morgan Stanley media conference. That's the most concrete scheduling news we've gotten recently on Discovery, which was originally set for a January. January 2017 debut, and then May, before being pushed again with no premiere date listed. I have said that I thought this series was doomed from the very start with CBS's stupid decision to force it onto the CBS All Access BS service they are launching. Moonves also attempted to defend the decision to put Discovery on All Access streaming service, which costs $5.99 a month to subscribe, versus airing it on CBS, saying, There are millions and millions of Trekkies out there. We know for a fact that the other versions of Star Trek all did really well on Netflix. That gave us great confidence that this was the right choice to put the full court press on all access. Basically, he was saying, we know that the Star Trek geeks are out there and they will pay to watch this, so we're going to exploit their love of this series and the original series to launch a new service to attempt to make it seem like we are as hip and technologically astute as the streaming networks, which they absolutely are not, and that is evident with the crap they are doing with all access and just from the crap they put on network television these days. Anyway, I don't know. What do you guys think? Will you waste $5.99 a month to watch Star Trek? I'm probably not, and that makes me kind of sad. Benedict Cumberbatch to star in Showtime limited series Melrose. You may be waiting a while for Sherlock to come back, but until then, if ever, Showtime has your Benedict Cumberbatch fix. The Emmy-winning actor will star in and executive produce Showtime's five-part limited series Melrose, the network announced on Tuesday. Based on the best-selling Edward St. Aubin novels, Melrose cast Cumberbatch as Patrick Melrose, an aristocrat and outrageously funny playboy who turns to substance abuse to erase bad childhood memories of his abusive father. David Nichols, who penned 
and the 2011 Anne Hathaway romance One Day will write the script for all five episodes. Each episode will take place over a few days in Melrose's life, from the south of France in the 1960s to New York City in the 80s to early 2000s Great Britain. No premiere date has been set, but shooting is expected to start this August, and you know, this definitely sounds interesting. David Boreanaz gives a hard pass to Buffy Reunion. March 10th marks Buffy the Vampire Slayer's 20th anniversary, but don't expect star David Boreanaz to do much to celebrate. The actor recently gave a hard pass to participating in any sort of Buffy remake or reunion. He's quoted as saying, No, never. That's done. See ya. Next. The Bone Star got his start playing a vampire on Buffy and on his own spinoff, Angel. And as Boreanaz explained, his reluctance to revisit Buffy has nothing to do with a dislike of John Raffaire. He's Quoted as saying, I have no problem with the cult audience and I would totally get back into the genre, but I'm not a big reunion guy. I tend to like to go forward. I don't like to go backwards, except when I've got ice skates on and I'm playing hockey. Boreanaz's kibosh on any Buffy reunion is also sad news for Bones fans who probably shouldn't expect the star to be revisiting his character Booth anytime soon after Bones ends later this year. I'm disappointed by this because while Angel is not needed for a Buffy reunion, I would have loved to finally see how Angel was meant to be finished, and if David has said that he's never going to play Angel again, I guess we'll never get to see that. Chris Hardwick will be talking on AMC year-round. Talking Dead has become just as big a part of Sunday Night Zombie Watching as The Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead, and the Chris Hardwick-hosted program has popularized the after show as a must-have commodity following shows with big fan bases. But what's a fan of Talking Dead to do during the hefty part of the year when there are no new walkers to kill? Well, AMC is betting we'd still like to talk about something. According to Deadline, the basic cable giant will be launching Talking with Chris Hardwick, a weekly chat show about all kinds of pop culture, not just a single show. Talking will have the skin of Talking Dead, the soul of the Nerdist podcast, and the guts of of a Comic-Con panel, Hardwick says. I have loved learning how to do a talk show these last six years on Talking Dead, but am eager to expand the format into other areas of pop culture. Now, I'm a Chris Hardwick fan and listen religiously to the Nerdist podcast, and as you probably have noticed, we at ATA get a ton of our entertainment news for the News with Nico section from Nerdist.com. So I'm excited to hear about this series, but I do wonder if AMC will be alright with the much smaller yet still devoted fan base and ratings that a non-Walker Dead version of this series will necessarily pull. I wish Chris all the best and will catch the show when I can. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Alright, coming right out of that Chris Hardwick Talking Dead news, we're going to jump right into The Walking Dead and talk about this week's episode entitled Say Yes. Members of the group scavenge for supplies. Meanwhile, back in Alexandria, someone must make a morally challenging decision. I'm not going to lie, this episode felt like a sideways move on the season as it didn't really progress the story toward the all-out war arc, which I'm predicting is going to be the season finale when that kicks off and progresses into the next season premiere, or even possibly beyond that premiere. Rather, this week's episode was something that many fans have been clamoring for for about two or three seasons now, an entire episode devoted to the Rick and Michonne relationship. When the two of them finally got together last season, it was welcomed by most fans and made sense in terms of story and character 
Whitaker. So I thought it was a great move overall. I mean, it had been building for nearly a season and a half or two seasons. So it was well written, properly progressed, and not your typical hacky TV relationship. So I was okay with it. But the madness of Negan quickly put the kibosh on any sort of afterglow of their getting together last season. And in the first half of this season, two people who had just found each other soon appeared almost like a tired old couple with serious marital issues. Thankfully, this week's episode gave them what is essentially a much needed getaway vacation. Of course, since it's The Walking Dead, it was overflowing with blood and guts and one of them almost bites it. But in a season as dark as this one has been, even that remains an easy and relaxing change of pace. Greg Nicotero directed this week's episode, and if that name does not sound familiar to you, you're probably not paying attention because he is the director of visual effects on this series and the master extraordinaire that brings these zombies to life each week, and someone I mention quite a bit because I'm a big fan. And also, his name in the opening credits has become a guarantee of two things. One, doom for one or more of the characters, and two, zombies in extraordinary large quantities. And the former lends this episode just the right amount of anxiousness, even in long stretches where Rick and Michonne are essentially just looking for food and weapons for their newfound best friends, the Junkyard Gang. However, it gets a tad worrisome when Rick and Michonne start discussing who will replace Negan once they kill him. Negan ordered the world his way. It's up to us to reorder it once he's gone. That's getting a little cocky, and we all know what happens when people get cocky on this series. Sure enough, they get their comeuppance when Rick, in an admittedly romantic romantic gesture goes out of his way to get a deer for Michonne while the two are running for their lives in a fairground that's turned into a zombie encampment. This episode tries very hard to make it seem that he falls to what appears to be his death beneath a pile of walkers. Michonne thinks he's dead and for a fleeting moment so did my mom who I watched this episode with this week. The scene plays out like a miniature version of last season's infamous Dumpstergate episode with Glenn which means it's a much better way of doing Dumpstergate putting us in Michonne's shoes but not dragging it out to the point where it becomes a major contrivance. But still, with it being Rick, I was never convinced it was even a possibility. As Michael would say on the DC Nation podcast, maybe if it were a season premiere, mid-season finale, or season finale, we would have been worried. Otherwise, they're probably not going to kill a main character. However, this scene had a momentary lapse of characterization. And what do I mean by that? I mean, Michonne is a warrior. She is built a certain way to fight and never give up. But when she saw what she thought was Rick being eaten by zombies, they had her drop her sword and almost break down and give up in that moment. I'm sorry, I understand that it was meant to help to show the viewers how much the two of them have come to mean to one another, but even so, that is not how Michonne would have reacted. She would have raged, killed all the zombies, and when it was safe and she was the only one left alive in the field, surrounded by all the dead, she then would have broken down. I feel like this was probably a mistake born out of an attempt to scare us for a moment that Rick was dead, but it ended up coming off as poorly done and poorly planned in my book. You want to scare me for a commercial break? Have her kill all the walkers after she thinks they killed Rick and have her go to look at the bloody carcass that the zombies are devouring and then cut to black. Or even worse, do it at the end of the episode and really piss us all off by going for a whole week thinking that maybe Rick is dead. But this did not work and it felt inauthentic to Michonne's character. Only a small misstep but worth mentioning because it took me out of the episode for a few minutes and it took me a while to get back in. 
Anyway, Nicotero worked his technical magic throughout this episode, especially that walker that Rick dismembers in stages, starting with his foot, then his waist, and finally yanking his entire torso from the windshield. That was probably my favorite zombie scene of the season so far, other than the one where Rick and Michonne go horde killer with the cars and the cable connecting them from two weeks ago. That was the best scene, probably, of the entire series. There was also that uber-creepy nightgown-clad zombie that Rosita encountered when she was on her own hunting for weapons. And while Rick and Michonne got most of the character study this week, they are trying real hard to grow Rosita in both story and character throughout this episode. And I'd say to varying success based on how much you care about her as a character. Me, not all that much. My friend Greg, he likes her and likes what they're trying to do in this episode. Basically, she's living in a world of guilt over the lives that Negan's taken on what she believes was her watch. She's laser focused on some form of redemption, even performing what could be read as a confession to Father Gabriel, albeit an unorthodox one. I usually try not to swear at my priest during confession, but that's just me. In a strange twist, he inadvertently gives her the hope that she needs to go after Negan herself, finally forging an overdue alliance with Sasha. Tara also got a chance to grow this week, experiencing her own moment of enlightenment. She's clearly been haunted by her visit to Oceanside, and almost treats Judith as a therapist while she was babysitting the little girl. She says, what makes our lives worth more than theirs? Because we want to stop the people that are hurting us, that are hurting other people? Ultimately, she decides that that is worth more, and all bets are off regarding how that isolationist colony will respond now that Tara's told Rick about their existence. Ultimately, I think that some of them will want to fight with the Alexandrians and, and the Hilltop and the Kingdom and take it to the Saviors, especially if they can fight from another location as home base and keep Oceanside secret. But they will not like being confronted or the or the request initially and will fight whoever comes to attempt to make a treaty with them. There could be many unnecessary deaths before they ultimately join the fight, and that's going to be too bad. I happened to be talking Walking Dead even before last night's episode with a few friends over dinner on Sunday night, and one of them commented that they were finally starting to care again about the characters in Walking Dead. He said after many months of almost numbness about who will live or die on this show and really not caring about the characters anymore, he's finally starting to care and root for his new favorite characters, and even choosing new favorite characters after much like me, his favorite character Glenn died in the season premiere. However, it's all but given that Sasha doesn't have much more time on this series since Sonequa Mark Green is the lead on Star Trek Discovery, which when it eventually arrives. But with their new suicide pack plan hatched in the closing moments of this episode, will Rosita go down alongside her? Will Eugene? Is it really possible that Rick or Michonne could? According to their conversation at the end of the episode, they think that that's a possibility. Could one of them make the ultimate sacrifice for the other? Could Rick really handle losing Michonne after Lori, after Glenn. Anything is possible until your heart stops beating, is what Gabriel tells Rosita in this episode. I don't know. I don't know if Rick can handle that. Anyway, a final random note. I think the soldier buried in the windshield was my favorite walker of the week, but the one with the machine gun that started firing at Michonne and Rick was pretty badass as well. It was ultimately a good episode, even if it didn't really progress the overall story forward in a major way. It worked hard at continuing the character development and was enjoyable along the way. So I've got to say, it was a pretty good episode. All right, with that, I think it's time we move on to Star Wars Rebels with a really interesting character study episode as well well as we get introduced to a longtime character who never really got much of backstory. I'm talking Mon Mothma in the Star Wars Rebel episode Secret Cargo. <laughs> 
When a routine refueling mission goes wrong, the Ghost crew find themselves transporting an important rebel leader across the galaxy, pursued by Imperial warships. A major story arc this season, and really the entire series since the first episode, has been the building towards unifying the small pockets of resistance around galaxy, and the time has finally arrived in this week's episode for that to happen. One of the Rebel Alliance's architects, Mon Mothma, has realized she can't fight against the Emperor Palpatine in any kind of effective manner from the floor of the Senate, but rather decides to be bold and make a dangerous and important move against him by publicly speaking out. Mon Mothma was voiced by Genevieve O'Reilly, the actor who portrayed her in Rogue One. She called the Emperor a lying executioner. She did it in front of witnesses and a hollow vid recorder, and her tirade against Palpatine even made it to the Hollow. Anyone who read Rogue One The Ultimate Visual Guide will recognize this key event from a biography note in the book. This is such a huge step for anyone to take, but especially so for Mon Mothma, a sitting Imperial Senator calling out the Emperor to the entire galaxy, calling him what he is, a self-imposed Emperor, murderer, and executioner. Everything we've seen of her up to this point in films and animated series, because she did appear now and again in the Star Wars Clone Wars show, all of that has painted a quiet portrait of a character. She's careful, she listens, she has strength to be sure, but we don't get to see it outwardly illustrated like with this speech. That she would let the cards fall where they may is proof that Mon Mothma is finally fed up with the Empire and wants the galaxy to see the heart of Palpatine's actions. Mon Mothma is one of those characters that is so important to the entirety of the Star Wars franchise and yet has been given so little backstory and character development on screen. Much of what we know from her comes from canon and legends extra material in books, visual guides, etc. I love that Rebels is taking the time to make her a key figure in this series and hopefully we'll finally get that backstory. Much like this season and and last season have done with Sabine, Hera, and Zeb, I can't wait to dive into Mon Mothma's life, history, and motivations for joining and organizing Rebel Alliance. Her proclamations bring her to the doorstep of the ghost as the titled secret cargo. She's on her way to a secret meeting intended to build an alliance. Two other elements about her mission are familiar to us. First of all, she's being escorted by Gold Squadron, which means Gold Leader, voiced by Yuri Lowenthal, is with her. And their meeting, it takes place above Dantooine. No big deal, just the planet Leia gave as the location of the rebel base in A New Hope. Perhaps we'll see our rebels head there either right now or in the the next coming episodes as their new rally point base or next season in season four. Anyway, as we get closer to Rogue One and A New Hope, I'm curious to see if these run-ins with known characters will become more common. Unfortunately, I don't think so. For one thing, budgets and production timelines probably keep them from going Easter egg crazy. Also, it's not Dave Filoni's style to include names and faces for the sake of including them, but I do hope that doesn't preclude him from adding in some for the sake of us Uber fans. One thing this episode's supremely excelled at was the action. We got to see Ezra join Gold Squadron and see Hera and Gold Squadron fly through a nebula in order to escape some Imperial cruiser class ships, only to run headlong into two Imperial Star Destroyers on the other side. I love the idea of using the proton torpedoes to cause the nebula to catch fire and engulf Star Destroyers, causing massive damage in the process. The flying was intense, the battle with the prototype TIE Interceptor was awesome, and the use of the nebula on the Star Destroyers was inventive and something we've never seen before. 
before in Star Wars, at least not on screen. Anyway. And also Thrawn was superb in this episode and continues to play the perfect villain, anticipating the Rebels' moves expertly. We have to assume that had he overseen the mission on the far side of the Nebula himself, things would probably have gone differently. So I'm not exactly sure why he continues to delegate to his vastly inferior officers, but the story needed an escape and I'm glad it was not at the hands of Thrawn or a Thrawn failure. Anyway, I really enjoyed this week's episode and look forward to more Mon Mothma character development in the future. Alright, with that, I think it's time we move on to Michael and Tim's supernatural review of this week's episode entitled The Raid. Supernatural segment of the Across the Earth podcast, where we're talking this week about season 12, episode 14, entitled The Raid. With me today is my friend and fellow vampire slayer, Tim Cook. Hey, Tim. Hey, how's it going? Not too bad. No, just saving the world. <laughs> saving or hunting things, saving people. Yeah, all that jazz. Now, on this week's Supernatural, guys, British Men of Letters try to recruit Sam Dean separate, each bearing all their own results. There were people online who had a hard time this episode. Some complained about not enough Deans, some complained about Mary, others were disappointed at how easily the villain was dispatched by the end. But either way, this episode had six reviews. Personally, I think the episode is a stepping stone, and although I was somewhat disappointed with how the episode actually went, I think we'll talk more about this as we go on. This episode are more than else. Clearly, the Bridgman of Letters cannot be clearly trusted. We know this from the beginning of the season with Tony, who catches you today, which I find hilarious, and to and the, the secrets that they kept from me about Rangel a few weeks ago. I love our immediately where last week's left off, and Dean telling Mary to leave. It was a powerful way to start off to so get the ball rolling. We see Mary try and reach out to her boys, both of which are giving her the silent treatment time, and then a scene between Sam and Dean, where Dean tells Sam, Sam to stop riding fence and take a side. As Dean points out, Sam offplays mediator to Dean and whoever he's pissed pole. Castiel and Mary, though ironic, used to be Dean with Sam and John before Dean took Sam's side before John's death. I can empathize with Sam simply because I often take on this role as well, and I think that there's a time and a season for everything, including immediately picking a side and then weighing options on both sides. Tim, what do you, was Sam wrong to defend their mother and try and see her point of view this week? Was Dean right in immediately rejecting what Mary was saying, even though he eventually came around? What were your thoughts on this. Well, one of the things I wanted to address, and you mentioned it earlier, um, about people maybe not liking this episode as much, is that I think one of the, and, and I hope our audience doesn't get uh, offended when I say this, but I think one of the big problems that the Supernatural fan base has is they're only there for Sam and Dean sometimes. Yeah. And there's sometimes a story to be told outside of just Sam and Dean. I mean, some of the better episodes we've seen, I know that one of our favorite episodes after the post-Kripke area is Weekend of Bobby's, and we hardly see Sam and Dean in Weekend of Bobby's. And the other episode I'll mention is that they were going to do a spinoff, I think a lot of our viewers know this, called Bloodlines. And that episode focuses primarily on the characters they were setting up for the spinoff, Bloodline. And a lot of the criticism that that episode got was there was not enough Sam and Dean in there. And it makes sense sense that for kind of the pilot of a spinoff to not have Sam and Dean in it as much because they're not going to focus on Sam and Dean. And those are two episodes, Weekend at Bobby's and Bloodlines, that me and Michael actually really like. So on that note, I would say I I hope that the writers don't take this to heart too much because I would like to see more episodes that don't focus 100% on the brothers. I think we see that throughout all the seasons all the time. And when you look at it in a, in a bit of a larger scope, it'd be nice to get episodes every now and again that maybe didn't focus on them and maybe told us a little bit more about what was going on with other hunters. I'm not going to get off on that side tangent too much. I just wanted to mention that there are some really great episodes in which Sam and Dean don't appear as the primary characters. I'd also like to say um, on the note of Sam and in kind of his role as a mediary this week, I'm glad that Sam 
was angry at Mary because Dean was also angry at Mary and I understand where Dean is coming from. It makes a lot of sense because if she's hunting, why not hunt with the two of them? It makes a lot of sense why Dean would be so agitated over what Mary did. Absolutely. And so it's interesting to see the role that they play this week and it'll be an interesting discussion when we talk about the British Men of Letters because like, we got our opinion of the British Men of Letters at the very beginning of this season. We established what our opinion of them was because of Tony. And we we see them take a very hard line. So, you know, no witnesses are left. And there will be a definite problem there between the Winchester brothers and the British men of letters, especially with Catch. We saw it even this week with him and Dean, is that Dean doesn't necessarily like his very brutal and harsh methods. And we also see that maybe Tony's perspective on Catch wasn't perfect because she kept saying that madman. But, you know, she's kind of his ex-girlfriend. So, (laughs) but it's a very interesting role that they established between the two of them. We will have to see if we see Tony anymore. We don't know that she's necessarily going to be appearing anymore. I would hope that we'd get her again. But in terms of the Winchester family conflict, I don't think Sam was wrong to defend Mary and try and see her point of view. And I think that what the British men of letters are trying to do is admirable. I mean, they've wiped out a lot of vampires. And we see even in this episode that Sam has kind of a deal he's almost willing to make with the Alpha, where he's like, we will just take him out when they step out of line, but we're only going to go after them after they step out of line. But the British metal letters seem to be a lot more proactive instead of reactive like the winners. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of the things I really liked was the fact that Sam was spotlit throughout the whole episode. And mm-hmm. we've, we've had a lot of episodes, of course, of the show where Dean has been the spotlight. Dean is focused. I mean, we even had an episode this season called Regarding Dean. Yeah. And I love Dean. Dean is one of my favorite television characters of all time, and he always will be. But since really like seasons one and two where Sam was part was the primary focus we haven't really had a whole lot of Sam-centered episodes and with this episode focusing a lot on his relationship with his mother and his relationship to the men of letters and mm-hmm. his views on him personally I really like that especially given that Jared had like he's a top build actor on the series as opposed to Jensen Ackles I think that was kind of cool that he finally had spot so we really needed to see him removed from his brother in order for yeah. him to shine when they're together Dean often overshadows Dean or Sam but Sam physically overshadows Dean. So I think that was that was definitely definitely caused some drama. But going off that, Sam decides Mary as she shows him around temporary British Menelette's base, essentially giving him a more personal version of Mick's earlier sales pitch. When Mick arrives, plans British Menelette plan to exterminate every last vampire in America, Sam's interest is immediately piqued, and I can't say I blame him. Unfortunately, this doesn't go as planned as the Alpha Vampire, who again, we haven't seen C7, returns and informs his children about the Men of Letters' plans. This leads to a vampack on the British Men of Letters' headquarters, and they basically kill everyone but Sam, Mick, and Mary. And, of course, the human be- being who betrayed Then there's a standoff Sam the Alpha, and Sam uses the cult to kill the Alpha as the other vamps run. Now, we'll get to the cult in a sec, but all this to say, end of this week's episode, Sam decides to take a side. He chooses to follow in his mother's step, grandfather as well, and work with the British Men of Letters, saying that he wants to be a part of some big. Now, Tim, I wasn't quite sure what to go this first. I mean, Sam, of all people, should never want to see another man or woman of letters again in life, and yet mm-hmm. he chooses to work. Does he have an ulterior motive here? I tend to think that he does. Is Sam simply working with the Brit because he wants to keep an eye out for his mom, or does he truly believe in what they're doing and what he's going to do with? I'm starting to believe that it's the latter, but I'm not totally sure. What are your thoughts, and how is this going to affect Hart Dean the rest of the season? Well, I think that both Sam and Dean are warming up to the British Men of Letters, and this is kind of what I've been expecting for most of the season: is that the British Men of Letters and the Winchester Brothers were going to team up at some point. And I think we know that the biggest difference, and Sam and Dean could get over the fact that they tortured Sam. I mean. 
mean, Tony was a rogue agent, and I think both Sam and Dean are going to find a way past that. But I think what we both know is that what's going to be really hard for them to swallow is how they treat the leftover people, the people who are in the situation but manage to see the British mail letters, how they leave no stone on turns and they execute literally everyone who doesn't already know about what's going on. So that's where the catch-up is going to come in. That That's where the big difference between the two sides are going to be, uh, between the Winchester brothers and the British Mental Letters. So I think that Sam and Dean have a good reason to team up with the British Mental Letters. And like I said, I think the British Mental Letters' goal is admirable. They want to get rid of monsters in America. And we even know that the Alpha let it happen in Britain because... Well, according to him, it's Britain. But now they're trying to import that over to America, and we do see a Britain in which demons are bagged and tagged before they even get onto the shore. I mean, when as soon as they show up. And so I think that there, there's something to be learned here. If they can wipe out vampires from America, that's a good thing, especially for the Winchester brothers, who kind of have to deal with the apocalypse every couple of years. So it's a, it's a good thing what the British mental letters are trying to do, but we know the hang-up is going to be that the British mental letters don't leave anyone else uh, alive and so without sam and dean knowing that i understand why they're coming around to the british mental letters philosophy and i can see them having a partnership for a very limited amount of time until they really understand the full scope of what the british mental letters do and when they find out that you know the secret service agents in in the mid-season family they were killed and there was that girl that was very much like sam yeah magda i think that's what will push sam over i do too and i think i think we'll see dean get on board with the British Mental Letters, and I think we'll see Sam jump off before Dean does, because Sam will find out about Magda. Yeah, I, I absolutely, I think in his mind, not only is that wrong, you know, they have a personal connection role, but I think he'll mm-hmm. also go back to that, that brother had done that him, where would he, you know, or if he had done that to his brother, Dean was one point, where would he yeah. be? Or Cass, he had all the souls God, where would Cass, and I, I think that's the biggest problem with Mental Letters for any set time, is the fact that with the British mm-hmm. Mental Letters, there is no redemption, there's no, there's no idea of, we can get past this better learn from our mistakes of on it's kill or be killed you're either done you're either with us or you're against us so i think that exactly be what sets sam over the edge and ultimately mm-hmm. now, now speaking of the our favorite alcoholic chester was pretty upset at by mother even with sam for not side immediate issue this leads to him going out on another drink something dean tends to do whenever he's listening <laughs> now eventually our cat finds work recruiting maggie's married to sam taking them on a hunt for vampire eventually this leads back to mental letters base and dean decides ultimately that mary is still family still his mother and wants to be there for her whenever he can. While Dean has drunk Brit's Kool-Aid just yet, he has gained a refreshed perspective on siding fam, which hopefully in the wake of Sam's inclusion in the British Mental Letters will include siding with brother as well. Tim, although Dean wasn't a huge part of this episode, what were your thoughts on developments? Are you glad that he's finally got it getting over his issues with Mary not living up to his childhood fantasies, or do you think that development will get flushed down the toilet and Sam tells brother he's also working on letters? Well, I think his agitation is going to come at Sam, because he told Sam this week you have to pick a side, and I think Dean's going to be very disappointed that he didn't pick his side. I don't think he's necessarily going to be that mad at Mary. We see that Mary's an exceptional hunter, and Dean has kind of come around to notice that, and I think that one of the things that we have to keep into consideration is that Dean is learning that his mom is a very independent person. I mean, the the Dean she grew up with and knew is very different than, than the mom that Dean knew. And 
And so there's these different expectations for both of them. And I think a big theme this entire season has been the two of them learning how to reacclimate themselves to each other. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a good thing that, that Dean is working through a lot of this. And I think a lot of what he was feeling came up this week when he when he talked to Mary. He wants to know why she's hunting without them. He thinks it's all about them. But at the end of the day, they recognize that they're family. And I'm, I'm sure they'll be more um, working on the relationship as the season goes on. But I think that we're kind of past the hump on Dean and Mary having problems with each other. And I think it's going to get better from here on out. I think Dean's really big problem is going to be with Sam and Sam not really taking his side on it, especially when it comes down to it, because there's probably going to be a point where the three of them have that discussion of whether or not to help the British Men of Letters. And we know which side Mary is already on, and we already know which side Dean's on, which means that that kind of final final bit of it will come down to Sam. And I think that's why Dean will get so hurt, because Sam will wind up picking Mary over him. Yeah, I agree. And that is that is definitely going to shoot. And I agree. I don't think that Mary will be who he's met. But after everything he's been through, brother, after everything, he's going to mm-hmm. pick his mother now or him. That's what we're most. Kind of like when he picked Cass or Benny over Sam. Sam's yeah. double double status. But, <laughs> but, but regardless, last we'll briefly talk about Cole. We mentioned it a few weeks ago. Mary stole it back from Real. But this week, Sam holds the first time in six seasons. It's been a long time since he's seen this gun. The cool thing about it, returning in this week's episode, the episode where Sam uses it to kill the alpha vampire, is that Colt first appeared in the season one episode of Dead Man's Blood. First episode in which vampires... It's also the first episode in which the Chesters find out that vampires even exist, and Dean actually uses the first on-screen Colt bullet to kill one. It's cool how the show is coming to certain aspects after being around for so long. Anyway, the Colt is finally back into play, and the alpha vampire is now dead. Now, I'm happy Sam got a Colt that he remembers how to make bullets after all these years, and that he was the one that got to kill the alpha vamp. But I was also disappointed at how minimal the alpha's role was this week. I would have thought that based on promos, episode descriptions, and and even the fact that he was coming back, that the alpha vampire himself would have had more action, and that there would have been more vampire action in general this week. Tim, were you disappointed in this as well? What were your thoughts on not only the alpha vampire, but also the cult being reintroduced to Sam? Will the Winchesters reacquire the weapon themselves, or are the British Men of Letters going to keep it for their own purposes at this point? Well, I think that I think that, that has been, if, the, if I have one gripe with this season, and even the last couple of seasons. I think it's that they introduce really powerful beings and then they kill them off really quickly. Yeah. We saw this with Ramiel. We saw this with the Alpha Vamp this week. We even to an extent kind of saw it with Lucifer this season. He's not gone. He's nowhere near gone. And kind of the first half of the season was them dealing with Lucifer, but they just kind of popped an egg and boom, he was locked up. And we, we've also seen this before. We saw this with someone like Abaddon where they really, really built her up to be this super, super powerful demon and they had to go through all this trouble and then they kind of just kill her off. And they, and they handled stuff like Abaddon and better than this, in my opinion. But it seems like that our big main villains aren't getting as much screen time anymore, that our screen time is going to characters like Cass and Crowley and the Winchester brothers a heck of a lot more than it's going to like building up these beefy bad guys. And this is also a problem in with the, this is that, I mean, that's my criticism of the Abaddon season because she kind of had to share that with Crowley that season with Crowley she had to share that season with Cash she also had to share that season with Metatron so there was a lot going 
on, and we really didn't get to see how big bad she was. And to a lesser extent, we saw that with Amara, too. We saw Cass playing Lucifer, and we saw Crowley playing a big role last season, and we also saw we saw Lucifer last season, and we saw him quite a bit, but we didn't see Amara maybe as much as we were kind of hoping. She maybe wasn't the big bad that they've been building up all season. And I think we're seeing that this season as well. We're just seeing a lot of that screen time going to other things, a lot of that screen time going to Winchester family drama, which is good. This is the first season we've had a, like a kind of harmonious Winchester family since since really, really early in the show. And even then, John didn't make this much of an appearance as Mary has. And so it's good that they're focusing on the Winchester family drama, but maybe they need to start taking on less big bad guys like, you know, Princes of Hell and, and Alpha Vampires and focus on just a pack of werewolves or just a pack of vampires or, you know, just going after something like a Wendigo, hint, hint, writers. Yeah. But maybe they need to focus on some of these more typical monsters instead of putting these big bad guys in there. And I think part of the problem is is that, you know, last season they defeated <laughs> they defeated God's sister in a sense. So I think this season is they're trying to keep a lot of these big bad guys in there, make it seem like the Winchesters can take on anything. Well, I think they're just they're diluting some of these characters a little bit because the last time we saw the Alpha Vampire, he was very, very strong. I mean, he was able to break out of restraints by himself. He's a very smart vampire. We know that. And it was unfortunate to see him pop up for one episode and then get taken out by the cult. Although, um, on that note, I'm very, very happy to see the cult back in the show. It's awesome to have it back in the hands of Sam. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's exciting that the cult is around, although I'm concerned that the cult is going to become a easy kill button for the show as we've kind of seen this week where it was just an easy kill for the alpha vamp the thing about the last time we saw the cult before is that sam and dean were working on limited bullets so they had to be careful and that's not necessarily the case anymore and i think i I would have preferred if they had a limited number of bullets they were still allowed to use just to make sure that they could keep down the casualty count and that they were using it on the really big bad things well i i i or mm-hmm. maybe a Nephilim is one of those things that could kill. Yeah, or maybe, maybe it is. I don't know. Just using it sparingly, I agree, is stuff heat. And I also hear points about them introducing these big powered characters and then killing them off immediately. I think Ramiel and the Alpha Vampire are very good examples of this. I don't know if I'd necessarily agree about Abaddon, Reef Darkness to a point. I, and, and even like, and, and the reason I say that is because I equate it to first season where they were hunting monsters and ghosts and all these things all the time. Yellow Eyes, Zazel was not really, I mean, he was the big bad person. He wasn't really all that involved in the show. Mm-hmm. They didn't really ever give him all that much time. They never really gave him all that backstory. Well, they, they referred the very to him minimum. a lot. They did refer to him a lot, but if you look back, see not how much do they actually face Abaddon compared to how much they actually refer to him. And I the same you said about the darkness. Um, I mm-hmm. think with the darkness, it was a little different, but she had a very personal connecting, and that got brought up every while. But so did Azazel Sen, and so did Lucifer yeah. and that got used in those early scenes. And I don't think very different in that regard. I think what I have more of, you have more of, is episodes like where Ramiel shows up and then immediately gets dispatched. Now, obviously, they had a weapon that kill him, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Dagon would be as easy to dispatch, especially with the Lance of Mike not destroyed. I think Dagon what we need Colt for. 
um, or even her sibling could be yeah. what we need the cult for. And again, the demon killing knife doesn't work, wouldn't work on a yellow eye, wouldn't work on a no. white eye, but it would work on lesser. And so you have for weapons that kill things, the cult is one of those things that can kill yellow eye. And I think that's what we need to be building towards. Yeah, I mean, uh, I again, I really do hope that they, they keep the cult very minimal. Like I said, it's just a concern of mine that they're going to overuse it. And I hope that I'm wrong. I really do. But I guess only time will tell. Absolutely. Well, that being said, guys, we're going to call it on this week's episode. We'll be back next week. The episode Summer Between Heaven and Hell, where we see Sam Dean Crowley, it looks like, take on the hell, not a hellhound, the hellhound. So we're, we're going back to really get this one, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm pretty excited. That makes me happy. Until then, that guys, back we'll go, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, guys, for your Supernatural review. Next, we're going to jump into the streaming section, and this week I am talking about Netflix's Making a Murderer, Season 1, which was 10 episodes. Inspired by a newspaper article from 2005, directors Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos have spent the last decade documenting an unprecedented real-life thriller that spans more than 30 years. Set in America's heartland, Making a Murderer follows the harrowing story of Stephen Avery, an outsider from the wrong side of the tracks, convicted and later exonerated of a brutal assault. His release triggered major criminal justice reform legislation, and he filed a lawsuit that threatened to expose corruption in local law enforcement and award him millions of dollars. But in the midst of of his very public civil case, he suddenly finds himself the prime suspect of a grisly new crime. Okay, so I know this series is an older one, being released all the way back in December of 2015, but is one of the first and one of the greatest of the original series on any of the streaming services. Riveting is an overused, even lazy term in criticism, but it's hard to think of one that better applies to this series making a murderer. Netflix's stunning 10-part documentary, which when it was released in late 2015, took its place alongside the podcast Serial in invigorating the true crime form. Like a cure-all to the spread of reality TV reenactments, this series serves as a remarkable endorsement of traditional documentary techniques, piecing together courtroom videos, depositions, news footage, and interviews into a fascinating narration-free narrative that plays like a thriller. Writer-directors Moira Demos and Laura Ricciardi have invested a decade in chronicling the case of the wrongly accused Stephen Avery, and the hard work shows in a story that feels as if it's equal parts Rectify and Fargo. A Wisconsin man with a history of petty crimes, Avery spent 18 years in prison for a sexual assault before being exonerated by DNA evidence in 2003. As the filmmakers painstakingly document, Avery's conviction seemed to require willful misconduct on the part of police and local prosecutors, ignoring alibi witnesses and evidence pointing to another suspect. With the case singled out as a miscarriage of justice, Avery appeared destined to cash in via a civil lawsuit, at least some compensation for an ordeal that, among other things, cost him his wife and children and 18 years of his life. Yet, as the moment drew near, Avery suddenly found himself charged with another heinous crime, inviting speculation about whether local authorities were seeking to undermine his claims. Adding a discomforting twist, much of the testimony that ultimately convicted him of the murder hinged on a 16-year-old cousin of the accused who possessed limited mental faculties and was extensively questioned, and yes, there's tape of all of this, without a parent or attorney present. 
Still, any skepticism will evaporate long before completing the first few episodes, and viewers will be hard-pressed not to come away with a gnawing sense that a terrible miscarriage of justice occurred over a span of decades. Because once reeled into this twisted web that is making a murderer, the temptation will be to binge on it until the bitter end. That's what I did. I just could not stop hitting play for the next episode. Amid a December dump of streaming originals in 2015, Netflix absolutely saved its best for last. I saw this over the Christmas break in 2015 and it immediately captured my interest. Dan and I discussed doing a review of it when we could find the time, but later discussed doing an entire section in the fall, similar to what I'm doing now, where we would review in their entirety streaming series as we both finished them. But sadly, that never happened. Rather than running through this series in a traditional review, I'd like to look at the question raised by this series and what it means going forward and possibly for a season two as they update us all on the developments of the Steve Avery and Brendan Dassey cases and the vacating of Dassey's conviction in 2016. Let's begin. The Netflix series stirred up questions about the convictions of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey in the 2005 murder of Teresa Hallback and, and spawned an army of amateur sleuths who have taken to websites like Reddit and other digital forums to analyze details of the case. Here are a few of the questions raised by the series and some of my thoughts on them. Did investigators plant evidence? The documentary offers a defense theory that law enforcement officials planted evidence against Mr. Avery. His blood was found inside Ms. Hallbach's vehicle, but a sealed sample of his blood held by the authorities showed signs of tampering. The district attorney, Mr. Katz, who prosecuted the case, says a test for a chemical preservative showed that the blood in the car was not from the damaged vial, although defense lawyers say that that test was unreliable, and I 100% agree with them that that test is not, it is done by the FBI, but is not sanctioned by the FBI. In other words, they'll, they do the test, but it should not have been admissible in court because it has not passed the Daubert test and thus it is not considered to be it's not it's not to a high enough level of sophistication or testing hasn't been done essentially Daubert versus Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals was a case in 1993 that determined whether the federal rules of evidence were reached and whether the Fry general acceptance test had been met and Daubert uh, that case actually raised the level beyond the Fry general acceptance test to make it a high higher standard. Anyway, this test has not reached that high level of discrimination and peer review, and thus it is not an accepted and should not have been accepted in this case. Mr. Katz also points to evidence not shown in the documentary that he says could not have been planted. Mr. Avery's DNA, which Mr. Katz contends came from sweat under the hood of Ms. Halbach's car, but it was not introduced in the criminal proceedings. So in the eyes of the, the case, it, it, it does not exist. In the eyes of the court, it does not exist because it was not introduced and it was not used in his conviction and thus it, it can't be this is a it's a BS argument by Mr. Kratz saying oh we had other evidence we just didn't use because we knew we had our man that's BS if you have the evidence you use it unless there's some reason that it's going to get thrown out and bring into question the ultimate conviction in which case it should have been given to the defense as part of the discovery and they would have used it but anyway second question was where did the car key come from an investigation into Miss Hallback 
Clark's death was turned over to the sheriff in neighboring Calumet County, Wisconsin, to avoid suggestions of a conflict of interest because Manitowoc County officials had helped convict Mr. Avery in an earlier attack that sent him to prison for 18 years. DNA evidence in that case later pointed to a different person. Nonetheless, Manitowoc County remained involved despite the fact that they were told not to. A Manitowoc County sheriff's official who had a connection to the earlier case was the one that found the key to Miss Halbach's car inside Mr. Avery's home after repeated searches had come up empty. Prosecutors suggest that the key was shaken loose during a vigorous search. And this was indeed one of the facts of the case I personally found most troubling, that the evidence was not found until the ones who specifically were told not to enter the crime scene to investigate broke that order and memorandum of understanding and somehow found evidence that three times before was not found. The whole reason they were told to stay out of the scene was to prevent this sort of implication of tampering and they refused to abstain and found this key piece of evidence. It's all too coincidental and I'm a big believer that coincidence like this don't exist. Another question was, was Brendan Dassey questioned fairly? The documentary showed that Brendan Dassey, then in his teens and with limited intellectual capacity, being questioned by the authorities without his lawyer or a parent present. Without seeming to understand the gravity of what he is saying, he confesses to taking part in a brutal rape and killing and also asks when he can get back to his class. His appointed defense lawyer appeared only intent on cutting a deal, even as Mr. Dassey says he made up the confession. The lawyer appealing Mr. Dassey's case, Laura Nerder, is quoted as saying, The first lesson that should be taken from making a murderer is that false confessions happen. People do falsely confess to crimes that they didn't commit. But Mr. Katz says Mr. Dassey's confession contained details that only a killer could have known. Sheriff Herman described the questioning by investigators as excellent, adding, Law enforcement doesn't say, What's your IQ? before saying, Can we interview you? Now, my problem with the video of this interview was the fact that they led the obviously intellectually impaired individual to a confession by feeding him those details that the prosecutor points to as only being known by the killer. Well, that's not entirely true because the investigators knew them as well and asked questions like, what did you do to her head? And he answered first, smashed it. And they said, no, what did you do to her head with the gun? And he says, I shot her. And then they say, you shot her or Steve shot her. And then Brendan says, Steve shot her, right? Is that what I'm supposed to say? The calls from him in jail to his mother are heartbreaking when she asks him why he confessed to these things if he did not do it and he says something to the effect of they said I could go home if I said what they wanted me to say so I said it but then they didn't let me go home. These videos of his confession when viewed in their entirety by the appellate judge was a key factor in why his conviction was vacated as being a coerced confession. To say anything else shows what a miscarriage of justice was perpetrated at least against Mr. Dassey by the prosecutor in this case, who was using this case as a means to promote his further political aspirations. It's just a shame and ultimately, if it weren't for the appellate court judge who finally reviewed this claim of a coerced confession and realized what a travesty had been committed, he would still be in jail. Now, why is there going to be a season two? What What is the possibility of continuing? What questions are still unanswered? In the view of some, the authorities were too quick to focus on Mr. Avery and might not have gone far enough to pursue evidence that could have pointed to someone else. Testimony suggested that a voicemail message on Ms. Ms. Halbach's cell phone might have been deleted after her disappearance. And if that's true, should investigators have pursued that lead more vigorously rather than just assuming it was Mr. Avery and going after him full tilt? What about other people 
who had access to the large Avery auto salvage property where some burned remains were found? And what about if this gory attack to which Brendan Dassey confessed took place as he described it? Should there not have been an array of blood and other physical evidence all over Mr. Avery's trailer and garage? My forensic opinion? Hell yes, there should have been. There's no way to clean that up. But law enforcement officials say the documentary failed to give viewers a full sense of what led investigators to Mr. Avery. Mr. Kratz said Mr. Avery had called Ms. Halbach's auto trading magazine the morning of her death and requested that she take photos at the salvage yard. He said phone records showed that he had called Ms. Halbach twice before she arrived at the salvage yard using a phone feature so that his number would not be visible to her. Dean Strang, who was previously a defense lawyer for Mr. Avery, has said he doesn't have enough hubris to say with certainty that Mr. Avery is innocent, but he does say, quote, I'm still left with the same really uncomfortable doubts about whether the criminal justice system got this one right. When I went to into the trial, I had really strong doubts. When I came out, those doubts had not been removed. He does not say that Avery is innocent, but he does say he was n- not proven guilty and their defense was hampered by the judge saying that they were not allowed under penalty of contempt of court to suggest that the authorities had framed Mr. Avery and were not allowed to bring up the fact that Avery was suing the same sheriff's department for framing him for the previous rape conviction he was found innocent of after DNA cleared him after 18 years in prison. Regardless, most who view this documentary come away with more questions than even these. If you've not watched this series, do so now before season 2 comes out, hopefully later in 2017. I guarantee after the first or second episode you will be hooked and by the end you will feel as strongly as I do that a major miscarriage of justice has been perpetrated. Maybe not that Stephen Avery is innocent, but that he was not proven guilty. And that is the standard that our legal system requires. Proven beyond a reasonable doubt that you are guilty of the crime. Otherwise, you have to be found not guilty. I'm not saying he didn't do it. I'm saying that evidence does not support a guilty verdict. And that's what is is really cool about this series. You can watch it and decide for yourself. And I suggest you do that. Alright, that's enough for this week. We're going to move into the closing. On next week's episode, we'll continue the spring 2017 TV season with a review of Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, an episode of Supernatural from Michael and Tim, and another streaming recommendation along with more news with Nico. Also, DC Nation continues with episodes of Supergirl, Flash, and DC Legends of Tomorrow, but no Arrow or Gotham as Gotham is still on its three-month hiatus and Arrow is taking a week off. So make sure to join us for that. Also, be sure to keep an eye out for Steve, Wu, Nikki, and the rest of the Marvelverse crew doing the Marvelverse podcast and their coverage of the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universes. But for now and most of the season, let's roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast network website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own individual programs. Get the iTunes Store, get Google Play Store. Guys, for the podcast shows, get our network. We have the DC Nation podcast, located at dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews popular DC Comics-related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast, located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews Marvel Comics-related TV shows and movies. And we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms 
sounds, such as the Big Bang Theory, and the Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, and the Mixed Radio Station, code by Jack Stifle. Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. And if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace, and the Windows Marketplace, and a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Because for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, got across their waves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle, got Google Plus, or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, that's 773-809-3363. Call someone sending us an email. Please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God, the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again, for our ATA podcast hosts, Nikki, Amy, Wu Kim, Joshua Mercury, James Heffel, Steve Nostro, and Michael J. Petty, I'm Nico Reifstek, and until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. See you guys, and thanks for joining us for another episode of ATA covering Walking Dead, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and our new streaming section. See ya! Now return to our regularly scheduled program.